Hello, you're listening to The Elegant Mind here on Valley 104.9 FM radio, serving Washington State's lower Snoqualmie Valley, including the communities of Duval, Carnation, Redmond Ridge, and all areas in between. The Elegant Mind is a one-hour discussion on all things Tibet, culture, living perspectives, mind science, Buddhist practices, and perspectives, all presented in ways that are hopefully practical, useful, and meaningful for life here in 21st century America. My name is Mark Winwood, and I am your host. So by way of introduction of today's topic, I'd like to tell you a little story. This goes back about 12, 13 years ago, and I was traveling through India and was interested in learning more about Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism in particular. I found myself in Dharamsala, which is the town in northern India that the Tibetan exile community has been given a home by the Indian government. And I had attended, or I was attending, I guess it was a 14 or 15 day retreat, kind of up the hill from Dharamsala in what is referred to as the jungle at a little retreat center called Tushita. And there were about 20 other people who were there on retreat. And as the retreat was coming to an end, it was one of the last days, one of our teachers said that we're in for a treat because that night we were going to be introduced to a teaching, an ancient teaching called the Heart Sutra. I remember how the Heart Sutra was portrayed that this is the this is it. This is the teaching. And if you get this, if you if you understand this, you understand everything that there is to know everything that there is to know about Buddhism, because all the teachings, all the sutras, you know, and these sutras that exist, you know, there are 10,000 stanzas or or 18,000 stanzas or even 100,000 stanzas long, and there's volumes and volumes of elaborate commentaries and so on. But all of these versions, all of these teachings are concentrated in the form of one teaching that is known as the Heart Sutra, And tonight, we are going to read and discuss the Heart Sutra. And I remember how excited I was about that because, oh my gosh, here I am. I'm all the way over here in India. I'm up in the mountains. Nobody knows where I am. And this is it. You know, I've, this is the the treasure chest is going to be opened for us, for me. And I'm going to understand, truly understand the essence of everything that seemed to be so beautiful and so interesting and so empowering but vast so we gathered that night and uh, we were in this little kind of old Quonset hut that had been used in in years past by the British military by the officers who used to summer up in the mountains to escape the heat of the lowlands of India and we were gathered in this little gompa and the teacher distributed copies of this teaching, the Heart Sutra, and we read. And it's it's very short. It takes, uh, and actually I'm going to read it tonight as well on this program. So it didn't take very long to read, and I remember when it was over, I was dismayed. I was completely dismayed because I didn't understand any of it. I mean, there it was, and it was... It wasn't that the words were big or difficult or or abstract or obscure. It had nothing to do with the vocabulary. 
it just it, none of it made any sense to me it was too mysterious i guess or or whatever <laughs> whatever it was and i was so dismayed because here here i am and here it is and here we are and there's nothing there's nothing that i can that i can take from it so in the years since the heart sutra has been one of the primary teachings that i like to share with others I've probably, I don't know, I've read it certainly hundreds of times out loud to myself and out loud to groups. I actually put together a course, a college course back in Florida on the Heart Sutra. I think it was a 12-hour course on reading and discussing what this teaching is saying. What what is it? What is it pointing to? You know, the Heart Sutra is classified as one of Siddhartha's perfection of wisdom teachings. And in fact, the title, the Heart Sutra, is is a shortened title for the English title, which is the Heart of the Perfection of Wisdom Sutra, the Heart Sutra. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to share it with you tonight. I'm going to read the text. I'll give you a little bit of background as to the text and where it was delivered and how it was delivered and from whom and to whom it was delivered and then we're going to we're going to listen to some music as we always do i have a, a really nice recording instrumental recording to share with you live recording live concert recording and then in the second half of this program we're going to analyze i'm going to dissect and parse for you the fundamental teachings of the heart sutra there's layer after layer after layer of this teaching. It is studied for years and years and years by scholars and practitioners, and there's always layers that are uh, that are being uncovered. But I'll give you the gist of it. I'll give you the gist of this teaching tonight, the Heart Sutra, and I believe it will give you something to think about in the days to come. It is a revolutionary, absolutely revolutionary psychological text in terms of the mind and how the mind works and, or how the mind doesn't work in ways we think it does. It is wisdom. This is, this is wisdom. This is insight as to our everyday reality, our consciousness, every moment of our conscious lives. This Heart Sutra describes for us how our mind works and enables us with that insight it enables us to perhaps become a little more balanced, a little more stable, a little less reactive, a little less emotional, a whole lot less self-centered, self-cherishing, self-oriented, and therefore a more meaningful, wholesome, beneficial, and happier person. So the topic of the Heart Sutra is probably one of the most extraordinarily complex and profound topics that you're that you're going to run across. And I, I think it's it's actually it's kind of fun to even think that in a one hour program here on the here on the uh, radio that I'm going to be able to communicate this with you. It'll be extraordinary to try, but let's see what we can do. There are many wonderful translations of this text, the Heart Sutra, this Mahayana Buddhist text called the Heart Sutra or the Prajnaparamita Sutra as it's also known Prajnaparamita Prajna is wisdom Paramita is perfection so the perfection of wisdom Sutra a sutra, as you probably know, is the translated, related teachings of Siddhartha. 
Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, the awakened one, the man who uncovered the perfect enlightenment within his mind and then spent the next 45 years of his life teaching others how to do the same, inspiring others and teaching, guiding others how to do the same, the Buddha, the man who achieved, who realized all the potential that his vast mind contained, potential which, by the way, each of our elegant, potentially perfectly elegant minds contain as well. So there are many translations of the Heart Sutra. It's a text that has been translated from centuries, from one language to another, one culture to another. The one that translation that I'm going to share with you, and I've read many of them, I settled on this particular translation a few years ago after studying with the translator himself, a teacher who was very impressed with his knowledge of the, of the sutra as well as his translation. So this translation that I'm going to read with you is translated directly from the Sanskrit by Jay Garfield. Jay is a professor in the humanities, a professor of philosophy, director of the logic program, and director of the five college Tibetan studies in India program, all based in Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. Jay is a scholar, a recognized scholar. He is one of the world's experts on the teachings of Nagarjuna. He explains things clearly and lucidly and frequently with a, with a wry sense of humor. I think his translation of the Heart Sutra is absolutely, it is clear, it is accessible, it's grammatically perfect, and I think it is top-notch. So I'm going to read Jay's translation from the Sanskrit of the Heart of the Perfection of Wisdom Sutra. And if you would like to get a copy of this, a hard copy of this, I don't know if it's available anywhere. I got this from him. If you'd like a copy, please send me an email. I'll be happy to mail it to you as a PDF file. It's not very long. Send an email to me at theelegantmind@valley1049.org. That's the elegant mind at valley1049.org. I will get that email. It'll forward to me and just uh, let me know that you'd like a copy of the Heart Sutra and I'll get that right off to you so that you can read it and, uh, and hopefully we can discuss. I'm happy to discuss anything that comes to light here on the elegant mind. These broadcasts, I am happy to discuss, answer questions, prod further and perhaps make more relevant to each and every person who's listening. So please don't hesitate to be in touch with me. Mark Winwood at The Elegant Mind. That's The Elegant Mind at valley1049.org. So the heart of the perfection of Wisdom Sutra, there are some some characters, some figures here that are that are mentioned that play a role in this particular perfection of wisdom teaching. Three main characters are the Bodhisattva, Avalikateshavara, he is known as the Mahayana deity of compassion, Shariputra, and the Buddha himself. This is basically a dialogue. It's a question and answer between Avalokiteshvara and the protagonist, Shariputra. This is how the Heart Sutra comes about. It's the responses of Avalokiteshvara to the questions of Shariputra. This, these are the Heart Sutra itself. The Buddha is there. The Buddha is present throughout the text, but he doesn't speak, except for at the conclusion of the text, where the Buddha says, excellent, excellent, that's exactly how it is. That's exactly how it is, thus affirming the absolute truth of what was said. 
Otherwise, he's silent, and the Buddha's silence is one of the most remarkable aspects of the Heart Sutra, you know, but his silence is, uh, it's not a passive silence. Silence here, I believe, is a term used for the insight and the courage to go beyond conventional thinking, particularly the conventional assumption that answers are found on the basis of intellectualism, but we won't go there. That's, again, those are the layers of this particular teaching. So, the Bhagavan is the Buddha, Avalokiteshvara is the Bodhisattva, the Mahayana, the great Mahayana practitioner, and Shariputra is, Shariputra is a really interesting character. Shariputra is one of Siddhartha's most capable, diligent, responsible, consistent, and brilliant students. But Shariputra represents the non-Mahayana approach. What is today known as the Theravadic or the Hinayana, there's uh, different phrases, different labels for that. I won't go into the details right now, but he's approaching the great Mahayana Bodhisattva, the, the great being of compassion, Avalokiteshvara, asks him a question. And then again, this dialogue is, is the conversation, the question and answer between Shariputra and Avalokiteshvara and the Buddha sitting there listening quietly and then reacting to what he hears. So this is Jay Garfield's translation of The Heart of the Perfection of Wisdom Sutra. This is what I heard at one time. The Bhagavan was staying at Vulture Peak near the city of Rajgir. He was accompanied by a large assembly of monks as well as a large assembly of bodhisattvas. At that time, the Bhagavan was absorbed in a meditation known as the profound enumeration of phenomena. At the same time, the Bodhisattva, the great being, the noble Avalokiteshvara, was contemplating the profound discipline of the perfection of wisdom. He came to see that the five aggregates are empty of essence. Through the power of the Buddha, the Venerable Shariputra approached the noble Avalokiteshvara and asked him, how should a son of noble lineage proceed when he wants to train in the profound discipline of the perfection of wisdom? The noble Avalokiteshvara replied to the venerable Shariputra, If any son or daughter of the noble lineage wants to train in the profound discipline of the perfection of wisdom, he or she should consider things in the following way. First, he or she should understand clearly and thoroughly that the five aggregates are empty of essence. Form is empty. Emptiness is form. Emptiness is not other than form. Form is not other than emptiness. In the same sense, feeling, perception, dispositions, and consciousness are also empty. In the same sense, Shariputra, all phenomena are empty. They have no defining characteristics. They are unarisen. They are unceasing. They are neither contaminated nor are they purified of contamination. They are neither diminishing or increasing. Therefore, Shariputra, in emptiness there is no form, no feeling, no perception, no dispositions, no consciousness, no eye, no ear, no tongue, no nose, no body, no mind, no visible object, no sound, no smell, no taste, no tactile sensation, no mental object, no sensory awareness, no cognitive awareness, 
no object of cognitive awareness. There is neither ignorance nor the end of ignorance, neither aging and death nor the end of aging and death. In the same sense, there is no suffering, no origin of suffering, no cessation and no path, no wisdom, and neither attainment nor lack of attainment. Therefore, Shariputra, since bodhisattvas have no attainment, they depend upon and dwell in the perfection of wisdom. Their minds are unobstructed and they are fearless. They transcend all error and finally reach their goal, nirvana. Therefore, the mantra of the perfection of wisdom is a mantra of great knowledge. It is an unsurpassable mantra. It is an incomparable mantra. It is a mantra that totally eliminates all suffering. It is non-deceptive. Therefore, you should know that it is true. Here is the mantra of the wisdom. Gate, gate, para gate, para samgate, bodhi, soha, which translates to gone, gone, gone beyond, gone completely beyond awakened existence. Hail, Shariputra. This is how the great bodhisattvas train in the profound perfection of wisdom. Then the Bhagavan, the Buddha, arose from his meditation and said to the noble Avalokiteshvara, well said, well said, that is just how it is, that is just how it is. The profound perfection of wisdom should be practiced exactly as you have explained it. The Tathagatas are truly delighted. When the Bhagavan had spoken his words, the Venerable Shariputra and the Bodhisattva, the Great Being, the Noble Avalokiteshvara, and the entire assembly of humans, great beings, and Gandharas were happy, and they praised what the Bhagavan had said. So there you have it, the Heart Sutra. Buddhism in a nutshell, the great treasure, you know, kind of crazy, you know, keeps saying there's no this, no, 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 negates everything that we've been trained to believe. And this really is the heart of the, the Mahayana teachings in terms of the view. It teaches what we call emptiness through the heart of compassion or Avalokiteshvara, known in Tibetan as Chenrisig. And this is why Avalokiteshvara is here, Chenrezig is here, to emphasize the presence of compassion, the union of emptiness and compassion. So we're going to go into some detail, some analysis, some contemplation about what this teaching is saying. You may have noticed the word aggregates was mentioned a couple of times, and I'm really going to focus. This is a teaching on the aggregates of mind, the stacks or the piles or the, the composition of consciousness, the composition of a moment, each moment of mind, each moment of consciousness. So we're going to, uh, we're going to take a look at what those moments of mind, the components of the moments of mind contain, and most importantly, what they don't contain. So this is the elegant mind, and this is an elegant teaching. This is the not-so-elegant Mark Winwood bringing this teaching sharing this teaching with you very happily and joyfully sharing this teaching with you we are going to take our musical sojourn for a few moments we're going to listen to once again some bobby vega music and just as we did last week we're going to listen to a song that bobby uh, played bass in the band zero 
Zero is a San Francisco-based band, San Francisco area-based band. They were very, very popular in their day. If you, By the way, if you like this music, I've got lots of it recorded that is shareable, and I'd be happy to, to send some your way. Most of my music is live, live concerts, very well recorded. Zero is very, very supportive of fan recording, allowing recording equipment on stage. And so there's quite a treasure trove of of this music. This particular song is called Favela, F-A-V-E-L-A. It's instrumental and was recorded at uh, the Maritime Hall in San Francisco, the Longshoreman's Hall in San Francisco. This is recorded on March 27, 1998. The band members are the aforementioned Bobby Vega on the bass, Martin Fierro on the saxophone. Martin plays a major role in this song. Steve Kimock on the guitar, Greg Anton playing drums, Chip Rowland playing the keys. So this is from 1998. What's that? That's 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago. It's hard to believe. I was at this concert. Hard to believe. 20 years ago, this is Bobby Vega and Zero playing Favela, Maritime Hall, San Francisco. Enjoy, and I'll see you on the other side.
Okay, so there you had Zero performing Favela. I do know they cover that song. They didn't write that song, and I'm not sure who did. I think it's a fairly traditional song. Favela in the Portuguese language is a kind of a, a shanty town or a slum that's built on the outskirts of a city. I think probably the most famous of the favelas is the one that's outside of Rio de Janeiro, favela. So it's kind of got that uh, Latin overtone, but um, it's a dance song. It's a dance song for sure. And I think if you listen to it, you can kind of hear some of the excitement of the crowd uh, as that song was, as each musician was taking their lead throughout the song favela. So I hope you enjoyed it. So to get back to the Heart Sutra, I want to talk about the, the aggregates of mind. You know, there's this, uh, this line in the second paragraph of the teaching where it says that Avalokiteshvara came to see that the five aggregates are empty of essence. The five aggregates are empty of essence. So we're going to talk about the aggregates, and that'll be mostly what we talk about. But just a couple of things that I want to touch upon before we get there. Here we have these two masters, uh, Shariputra, the master of the, what's today known as the uh, Theravadic faith or the Theravadic lineage of, not faith, lineage of Buddhist teachings and Avalokiteshvara, the, the Mahayana, the great Mahayana Bodhisattva, the great being, the noble, noble Avalokiteshvara, meaning Buddha-like on the path to Buddhahood. And Shariputra asks him, how should a son of noble lineage proceed when he wants to train in in your path in the path of the uh, perfection of wisdom and Avalokiteshvara immediately replies well if any son or daughter or daughter of the noble lineage wants to train in the profound discipline of the perfection of wisdom he or she should consider things in the following way and then there's this whole list of of no this, no that, no eye, no ear, no visible object, no sensory awareness. There's no ignorance, there's no end of ignorance, there's no suffering, no origin, no wisdom, and so on over and over. None of this, none of this. But interesting how the Mahayana path instinctively includes men and women, where the Theravadic path, which was mostly a monastic uh, path of uh, monks, renunciants, really focused on men. So that's one of the direct and right at the top teachings of the Heart Sutra, one of the statements of the Heart Sutra. And there, so the teaching goes on, and then there is this mantra, the perfection of wisdom, the mantra of great knowledge, non-deceptive, and it goes gone, gone, gone beyond, gone completely beyond, awakened existence, hail. Um, Gone beyond what? gone beyond ignorance, gone beyond delusion, gone beyond the causes of suffering, gone beyond cyclic existence, gone beyond being subject to the forces of karma, gone beyond, gone beyond. That's where this teaching goes into perfection, into great bliss, into ultimate wisdom, enlightenment, awakening, compassion, patience, understanding, equanimity. And so there's this conversation that goes on and the Buddha, he's listening, you know, he's quiet, but he's listening. And, and then he kind of, when the conversation, when the, when the explanation is over, when Avalokiteshvara has explained to Shariputra how one follows the path of the Bodhisattva, the Mahayana path, 
the Buddha just arises and he says, that's it. Well said. Well said. That's just how it is. That's just how it is. And all the beings that are listening to this teaching, the the, the bodhisattvas, the, the monks, the, the humans, the, and even the Gandharvas are mentioned. The Gandharvas are those, uh, is the state that um, the mind takes in between death and rebirth. The Gandharvas, even the Gandharvas are happy at understanding it, hearing this teaching, this profound teaching, and, 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 and they're happy and they praise what it is that that they've just heard so so that's kind of the the surrounding and there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff in this teaching there's a lot of political the uh mahayana versus what was known as the hinayana the theravadic uh there's a lot of politics going on here subtle and not so subtle politics but we're not going to go there i'm not going to really focus on that what I do want to talk about, though, are the aggregates of mind. I would like to explain this to you, what this is and what these are. So I ask you to, um, to listen with as best you can, kind of an open mind, a flexible mind, and uh, listen to the, this explanation. So what Siddhartha came to understand in his enlightenment, in his omniscience, in his perfect understanding of everything that there was to know is that our mind doesn't work. The mind doesn't work. The sentient mind, all minds don't work the way we think they do. Our mind, we assume, is if you stop and even think about your mind and what, what, what's going on and how, how's it, how does it operate? You know, what is it? Well, it seems to be this kind of continuous stream. The mind is a continuous stream. And Siddhartha, in his enlightenment, in his, in, his, uh, in his meditation, his realizations, came to see that the mind isn't really the continuous stream that he thought it was and that others believe it is. In fact, the mind is very similar to, uh, to a movie, to a movie theater to a film being shown in a movie theater. And I don't know how it works these days with digital film, but I know how it used to work was there were reels of film and they were up in a projection room and the film ran on the projector at a particular speed in front of a, a projecting light. And then the film was projected and shown on a screen in conjunction with sound and it was continuous action absolutely continuous action, just like we think our mind is, continuous action, continuous. But if you were to go up into the projection room and take a look at what was really happening, what was running in front of the light through the projector, the film, was not just, it was not a continuous stream, but rather it was a series of frames, of separate frames that were running in front of the light at a particular speed, all in sync to project accurately up on the screen what the filmmaker wanted to project. And each one of these frames was absolutely complete, had everything it needed, and from one frame to the next, to the next, to the next, there would be subtle difference, subtle differences that when projected on the screen looked as though it was continuous motion. 
It's really similar for those of you who are old enough to remember the old flip books, the old flip comic books, you know, Mickey, Mickey Mouse steering the ship and he's at the wheel of the ship and each page is exactly the same from the one before and the one following except his hands are in a slightly different position and the wheel is in a slightly different position. And when you flip them, they look as though it's continuous motion, but it's not continuous motion. It's frame by frame by frame by frame by frame. And Siddhartha came to understand that that is exactly how his mind and all minds, his mind through all his previous lifetimes, that is exactly how his mind worked as well. And these moments of mind are streaming very, very quickly, so quickly that we think they're not moments of mind. We think they're continuous, but very, very quickly. In fact, he identified, I've actually seen the teaching, he has identified that approximately in the snap of a finger, there are approximately 64 occurrences, moments of mind, or moments of consciousness, moments of mind, moments of consciousness in the snap of a finger. This is how quickly our mind works. And then Siddhartha, the, the scientist, the mind scientist, the great professor, laid out exactly what composes or comprises these moments of mind. What, what, what makes them? What are their parts, if you will? And these parts that Siddhartha identified that flow one after another after another are the five aggregates, the five aggregates of mind. They're known as the skandhas in the Sanskrit language, the skandhas of mind. Sometimes they're referred to as heaps or piles because they, they come one after another and they're kind of indiscriminate. They're, they're kind of like piles, like heaps of things that come together, five of them. The mental constituents, the aggregates of mind, the changing configuration of these five factors or skandhas. Now, just remember, before we get into these details of what these five aggregates are, just consider what mind is. Just consider what you are. Just consider your experience. Everything, everything that you know, everything that you think, everything that you feel, everything that you experience, every moment of consciousness, of being, of reality, every, everything that there is to you comes to you through your mind. It comes to you through your mind, every feeling, Every sensation, when you step on a pebble and get that, that, that pain in the bottom of your foot, that pain, that sensation is traveling from your foot up your nervous system and into being experienced by your mind. Without mind, there is nothing. Without mind, there is nothing. Your entire experience is your mind. And here, what the Buddha, Siddhartha, did, and the teachers have done in the century since, he analyzes exactly what mind is and how does it work and what are the pieces? How does this whole amazing thing happen or occur? So we have these five skandhas, these five aggregates, 
and they occur to produce a moment of mind, a moment of consciousness in order, in a particular order. And the order is form, sensation, perception, mental formulation, and consciousness. Form, sensation, perception, mental formulation, and consciousness. So what are these? What does this mean? Well, form. Form is anything that enters your mind, enters the processor of your mind through your sense organs. So anything that you see, anything that you hear, anything that you taste or smell or touch or think. There's six sense organs. I remember years ago, you know, being in school and we learned about the five senses. There are the five senses. Well, no, there are six senses Senses being doorways, sensory input avenues, doorways. There are six senses, and mind itself is a sensory doorway, an input channel. And if you're wondering how, what that means and how that is, just consider the fact that when you're, um, when you're lying in bed and you're, you're sleeping at night and you're dreaming, and you're not eating anything, you're not tasting or touching, you're not smelling or seeing or hearing anything, and your mind is active. There's visions, there's feeling, there's you know emotion, memories, somewhat random, but they're occurring. They come from mind itself. They come from mind itself. Mind is a sensory input, along with your eyes, your tactile sensations, your ear consciousness, your taste consciousness, and your smell, your nose consciousness. So the first thing that happens is something enters the mind, form enters the mind. That's the first aggregate, the first heap. Then second, there's a factor of sensation or feeling. And here are, you know, again, the, the five senses play a role the mind senses there's a feeling there's a sensation that takes place and then there is a perception of the form and feeling the perception is the faculty that recognizes physical and mental objects there is a perception there's a there's a recognition so we have enter form we have the sensation of that occurring and then we have a recognition and then there is the really interesting fourth skanda or fourth aggregate that is the impulses or mental, what are known as mental formulations or mental formations. This is where volition and attention and will and habits take place. This is where our reactions occur. This is where our karmic impulses the reaction that we have, a positive reaction, a negative reaction, a reaction that brings about an emotion and a motivation and, and so on. This is where the, the we, the me part of it, of the moment of mind occurs. This is where we all somewhat differ. All minds have the ability for information to enter or data or something to enter the mind and there's feeling and there is perhaps identification. Identification might be different from person to person, but it's this fourth formation where karma takes place, where our reaction, our impulse takes place. 
And then we have the fifth skanda, which is consciousness or awareness. And, and consciousness in, in Siddhartha's teachings and his understandings, consciousness is not something apart from the other heaps or skandhas, but rather it's the interacting where they all interact and, and consciousness then arises, this moment of consciousness, this moment of mind arises based on this, the conditions of the four previous skandhas. And this is a moment of mind. This is it. This is what we are experiencing very, 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 very quickly. One after another, after another, after another, after another, after another, very, very quickly. These five aggregates categorize all individual experience. This is everything we are. This is everything we are. And guess what? And guess what's not there? Guess what does not play a role here at all? And that is ourself self, me. There's no self here. There's no self here to be found at all. Siddhartha taught that our egos, our personalities, and the, and the sense that our, the self is something distinctive and permanent enclosed within our bodies is just an illusory effect of the aggregates of the skandhas. It's just a thought. It's just a thought. So, these these skandhas, these whirling groups of forces, you know, they're just they're kind of like our body. They're, it's not a fixed thing. They include our feelings, and sensations, perceptions, intentions, and states and states of consciousness. So this is how our mind works, and it is always occurring. It is always in play. It is always changing. And we have, again, we have this, this sense, you know, that we are a, we're, we're, an, we're a, an, an individual, you know, the idea that, well, we're, you know, we're not divisible. We're, we're, an, we're an individual. We're, you know, but these teachings say, no, what really what we are, what our reality is, is that we're an ongoing entity, you know, and we're prone to separation and to, into into different realities and different ideas, different aspects. These these skandhas, whatever is occurring in the mind, is what we are. That is our total experience. That's what we are. There's this illusion, this delusion, this illusion that is really the cause, the major cause, this ignorance of how we truly exist. And by the way, how everything else exists, but we won't go there. We'll just talk about us this reality of how we exist, you know, and we're not, we're not who we think we are. We all have our, our thoughts, our fantasies. They're almost like superstitions about ourselves. But when you think about it, when you analyze these teachings, when you think about the Heart Sutra, when you meditate on the Heart Sutra, when you really, truly, authentically, and honestly begin to assess this particular teaching, in terms of what you've experienced and what you've come to know. You know, there's form and feeling and perception and volition and consciousness. That's it. That's what comprises our individual existence, again, according to the, you know, enlightened Buddha, Siddhartha. This is a really interesting reduction of all of our sandcastles, all of our fantasies about ourselves, it's not meant to be depressing, 
but rather to introduce us to how things are, how things truly are, to introduce this awakened, enlightened view of complete understanding. And the attendant teaching, the attendant insight to this understanding is that if we understand and accept and begin to be aware and mindful about what's going on in our mind, we can actually impact and influence that fourth skanda where our reactions take place, our karmic reactions, our habitual reactions, our, our familiar reactions take place. And then through inner investigation, understanding, yeah, spiritual work, psychologically spiritual work, we can, begin, we can begin to really apply ourselves to being what we want to be, what we believe is our very best self. You know, I remember a conversation I had not too long ago with a friend, and we were discussing the Heart Sutra, and, and basically he said, you know, I, I get it. This makes sense to me. I understand the skandhas, the five skandhas. I understand the moments of mind, and, and it's very logical. Form, feeling, perception, and then our reactions or our, our mental formations, our volitions to what has entered our mind, and then a moment of consciousness where it all comes together into experience. I understand that, but emotionally, I have a hard time with this emotionally. I have, I'm kind of unable to accept that it's true. So how, you know, how do I get past that? You know, it's, uh, it's interesting. There's, uh, there's commentary on this and, you know, to, to paraphrase it, basically you chew on this. You think about this all the time, you chew on it and, and you chew on it until your teeth wear down and then your jaw wears down and then you see what's left. And this chewing is called meditation. It's called meditation. All these, these Buddhist conundrums of which this is a major conundrum, all these Buddhist conundrums and debates and techniques that are involved, you just chew on it. And, and it doesn't get chewed up though into pieces. It wears down, it wears down. There's actually, there's a, there's a Zen poem that, that I've encountered. It's kind of an enlightenment poem where the master sings about hearing the sound of emptiness, gnashing its teeth, you know. And guess what? We're the food. We're the food that's being gnashed in those teeth. You know, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty yum delicious. So here's what we chew on. What is our existence? What is the force that impels our existence? Are we free to steer? Are we free to guide that? Or do we just have to be blown forward by, you know, by karmic force, like, like dead leaves in the wind? That's the point. And, you know, and you can do that if you want. We've, you've done it for many lifetimes. You can continue to do that. You can just exist if you want. And we're all here just existing. But this teaching, the Heart Sutra, leads us to think about what, what exactly do we think we are? As we go on, if we feel depressed about who we are, are we stuck with that? If we encounter challenges and difficulties in our life that we relate to ourselves, are, again, are we stuck there? If our lives feel claustrophobic, are we stuck with that? This is kind of where this, the, this teaching goes. This idea 
of how mind works and understanding that there are components and aspects to mind and the workings of mind, I think it leads to perhaps a very practical notion that that we can get in and we can we can fix it, we can change it, we can guide it, we can enrich, we can enrich what's occurring in our mind. And you know, when when a, like a moment of anger comes along, instead of just experiencing the energy of the emotion, the anger, perhaps we we see it, we identify with it, and rather than saying, you know, well, I'm just an angry person. What's wrong with me? Um, I can, I'll never get rid of this. This idea that seems to have kind of a, a logic to it really doesn't because the anger is just a reaction. It's just a fourth skanda reaction to something that's occurred. We build all kinds of fantasies around it usually of, of righteousness and uh, <laughs> rationalization. But the Heart Sutra shows us something that we've, I believe that we've never really considered before. It shows us the workings of the mind and in understanding the workings of the mind, just like a car engine, and you can, you lift up the hood and you look at an engine and oh my gosh, how do I deal with this? How do I, how do I work with this? But if we understand how the engine works, if we understand what the pieces are, if we understand how the pieces interact, we can begin to get in there and actually do some repair, actually get that engine running more smoothly and more efficiently than it was beforehand. And that is really what the Heart Sutra is all about. So this is Mark Winwood. This is The Elegant Mind, The Elegant Mind, Your Elegant Mind, broadcast here on KAPY Valley Radio 104.9 FM in western Washington state, the lower Snoqualmie Valley, the beautiful lower Snoqualmie Valley, the towns of Duval and Redmond Ridge, Carnation, and the valley in between all those, uh, all those places. And once again, if you would like a copy of the Heart Sutra, I would be happy to send it to you. Please send me an email at theelegantmind at valley1049.org. That's the elegant mind at valley1049.org. And I'll be happy to send you a email you a PDF of this teaching, the Heart Sutra. Or if you just have some questions, would like some clarification, would like to learn more, whatever it may be, please, please be in touch. We do teach. We do have teachings in, in Duval on Thursday nights, although I have to say, for the we'll be meeting on Thursday, October 4th, and then for the next uh, four weeks, we will not be meeting as I am going on uh, on a retreat. I'm actually helping co-lead a retreat of primarily psychologists, psychology students, to a uh, monastery, Kopan Monastery in Nepal for teachings, meditations, and the like. So I will be back the end of October and then getting back into regular Thursday night teachings beginning probably November 8th. I'm not quite sure how the travel schedule is going to go. So shoot me an email and uh, I'd be happy to respond. So once again, this is Mark Winwood, The Elegant Mind. Thank you 
for tuning in and we will uh, we'll be back we'll be back with you soon i expect to have some pretty interesting stories to tell from this this trip to nepal and the people that i'll be encountering there's some wonderful very highly esteemed and respected teachers are going to be working with us on this retreat tibetan lamas and it should be it should be a hoot our aggregates will be will be singing loudly i thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed and we'll see you down the road. Bye-bye.